Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is Peter Kim. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Seven Mile Road. Oh, what a great morning. Uh, We get to dive into the final beatitude today of our series together. But before we do, I want to start off by showing uh, an image on the screen here. This is a picture of, kind of blocking the view, my wife and me in Barcelona. That's where we're at. And we're visiting the Sagrada Familia. And if you have been to such a place, I know some of you are smiling at how I just properly pronounced that. I appreciate the fist bump. Uh, This is the Sagrada Familia. And as you can kind of see from the pictures, this is a real place. And believe me when I say that though it stands over 566 feet high, and though it is a large, looming structure, it is breathtaking only when you walk into the space. As you walk in, you see stained glass covering every corner. Every nook and cranny is beaming forward with light. You see little ones dancing in the light, in the beams. You see people in their 70s and 80s just just soaking in the grandeur of the space. My jaw literally dropped. It is the only place that I've ever been to that has caused me to literally have my jaw drop the entire time. My wife would look at me like, "Are are you done yet? Like, we can keep walking? And the reason is, is that this is, like, as you can imagine, just how breathtaking it would be to have every hue, every color just beaming forward into you, filling up the space. This jaw-dropping brilliance is, to a large degree, what I believe Jesus is doing in giving us the Beatitudes. One of my seminary professors talked about the Beatitudes in that way. He talked about it as stained glass that each of the Beatitudes that we've studied thus far, seven of them to be exact, each of them is a shard or a piece of a beautifully, thoughtfully created stained glass. It is Jesus' depiction or visual of the good life, the blessed life. We've talked about being poor in spirit or bankrupt of soul, needing God. We've talked about uh, mourning how once you realize how desperate you are for him, you grieve over your brokenness and the brokenness all around you, and that puts you in a place of meekness, of humility and lowliness, because you know how much you need God. And that longing turns into a physical hunger, a thirsting for more of God's righteousness and justice in the world. All of those four describe a posture of needing help. Needing help. What that thrusts us into, though, immediately thereafter, is all of a sudden being a person that can extend help. Once we are in a posture of needing help, we can extend help. You can give mercy upon mercy to folks who do not deserve it. Right? You can uh, give your motives of purity of heart to those around you. And you can finally be a person who doesn't just love peace or appreciates peace, but can make peace where there is none. Now, what we're going to learn today, though, is uh, what I believe is Jesus giving us the seven kind of pieces of the stained glass and then giving a descriptor at the end of it. Here's one more blessing for you. If those realities are true, blessed are you for not just needing help and not just extending help, but for all those reasons, even going so far as to get hurt. We're going to let that soak in for a second. This is the sermon that Jeremiah was like, you you can definitely preach this one. So rest assured, Seven Mile Road, people of God, if you follow Jesus, your pursuit of him will lead to pain. 
It will, biblically speaking. It will lead to pain. But we don't just stop at resting assured of that fact. We, per the text, will come to find that we can also rejoice. We can rejoice because it means that we are truly living, truly living the good life. So as Jeremiah was leaving a couple of days ago, we kind of had like a, a celebratory goodbye. We brought his favorite, favorite breakfast item, kolaches from Kalachi Factory with sausage, cheese, and jalapenos. And if you've ever eaten a sausage, cheese, jalapeno, kolache with Jer, you would know that it kills him every time. He starts sweating in places normal people don't sweat. He, he physically looks like he's in pain. He starts to tear up. And so we're looking at him, and, and the other folks on our staff who've never eaten this type of kolache with him are asking him, why do you do this to yourself? You really enjoy this. And he looks back and he says something to the, to something to the effect of, oh, it hurts so good. Oh, it hurts so good. And this is how I know that I'm truly living. That's what he says every time I ask him why, again, the jalapenos. And he looks back and he says, I know, this is how I know that I'm truly living. And so church, just like a jalapeno kolache will do for you, when you pursue God and it leads to pain, which it will, you can also rejoice as it hurts so good because it, it's proof that you are truly living that you are really living the good life. So let's dive into the passage and allow it to reveal this to us. So if you've got your Bibles, look with me in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 10 and 11, read this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, I want to pause there because I want us to recognize together we have to settle ourselves into, well, what type of persecution are we talking about? Why? Why is this persecution the type of persecution it is? And the verses tell us, for righteousness' sake, or on account of righteousness and on account of Jesus. So this is not any sort of persecution. It is a very particular sort. So I want to just spend a few minutes for us to dive into what this type of persecution is and what it is not. Because if you're anything like me, you, have may, heard, you may have heard this passage preached in the past. And you may have heard grand and glorious stories of the, the Adoniram Judsons and the Hudson Taylors, people who have gone somewhere, distant land, far away, and have died, and, and something tragic happened, but they did it for their faith, and, and that feels like a great, inspiring story, and those are great and inspiring. And yet for you, modern-day, 21st-century Houstonian, that feels like a world apart, a distant reality. And so I want us to be able to allow, allow the text to apply to our own lives. What does this mean for us here and now? Persecution for righteousness' sake. What is, that? what is that? And what isn't it? I believe there are two sorts of persecution for a Christian. There, there is you being offensive for your folly. And there is you being offensive for your faithfulness. You being offensive for your folly and you being offensive for your faithfulness. Now, what does this look like? If you have a history of harsh exchanges, like in your past, you have conversations that people can point to, whether it's your family members, your friends, where you have been so convinced that in order for you to be a good Christian, you've got to call out every wrongdoing, sinful, wicked, 
And at every turn, you have to yell into people's ears, the gospel is what you need. You're a sinner, and you need Jesus. That at every turn, you feel the need, the inclination to yell it at people, and people receive it really poorly because you have a history of harsh exchanges. Versus, versus the alternative. That instead of a history of harsh exchanges, rather, you have a track record. A track record of speaking the truth in love. Now, what's the difference there? The difference there is you still are convinced you have to be a person who declares the goodness of the gospel. You have to be a person who, who gives wise and biblical advice. But instead of yelling it, condemning people as you do, you are a person with proverbial wisdom. You are slow to speak. You listen until they're done. And as the Proverbs would advise you, every heart is a deep well, and you, being wise and understanding, draw it out bit by bit so that when it is your turn to speak, it is receivable. They have a heart to hear you, and that when you share the good news of the gospel, that it's not all on them, that there is someone who's done it on their behalf, that is actually good news for that person. It is not thrust at their face, but it is received gently and comfortably because you've done the hard work of speaking the truth in love. But I need to remind you that persecution, pain, is the result for both of these sorts of people. Whether you are offensive for your folly or whether you're offensive for your faithfulness, the result oftentimes is that you will be a person who's ignored. Now, what do I mean by this? If you are a friend who listens intently, and who always turns to the scriptures and godliness as the, the best path forward, you know what your friends and even your family members will probably ultimately do? They'll put you last on the list of people to call. Because you know what we desire more than anything else? We desire for someone to just affirm us. I've got a bad choice I want to make. It's probably not the best choice, but it's really what I want. I know who to call, not that friend. And so the truth of the matter is, even if you do it faithfully, even if you're offensive for all the wrong or all the right reasons, you too will be ignored, not just because you're, you know, with a microphone screaming it into people's faces at every corner and in every conversation, but even when you're slow to speak. But if you are consistently sharing the goodness of the gospel and the truths from the scriptures and wisdom from God, you too will be ignored. People will not turn to you, and you will be hurt by that. You will be hurt by that. Another example of this is the difference between sacrificing for the spotlight, which is folly, or making convictional, countercultural choices because it's biblical. So this is the difference here. Uh, when I first heard this passage preached, and I heard of the, the heroes of the faith who have gone so far as to die, I was like, I want that to be me. I want to be a hero that people write books about. I want to leave a legacy that I could be proud of. I'll never forget in college when Kat and I were dating, I came up to her and I said, I just had a great dream. She's like, really, what happened? And I said, I died in North Korea. I got dropped in there and I shared the gospel and they killed me. And I came in with like a chip on my shoulder of just like, Isn't, doesn't that make me so awesome? Like check out the spotlight of my faithfulness. And she looked at me like, this is really stupid. Like you, you sound stupid to me. And it was true. That is the epitome of making large decisions, right? The, the sacrificial sort, because you want people to applaud you 
It is a self-absorbed, self-exalting sort of sacrifice, and that is how you can be offensive for your folly versus, versus when you make choices, not the 10-year decisions that are your whole world turning upside down, but every single day and week and month, your consistent daily choices because of your conviction of what is right and true per the text, per the scriptures, it rubs against what other people are doing. You will say no to things that other people will shake their head at. The things you say yes to, the radical generosity and hospitality by which you lead your life, where you are giving away of yourself versus storing it up, preparing yourself for the years ahead in the ways that the world would say to, when you are no longer at those same places doing those same things, you will be insulted for it. People will talk behind your back. They will say that you are holier than thou, that you've changed. You see, there will be insults and even mockery awaiting you if you do it faithfully. When you make convictional, countercultural choices, the world will also insult you for it. That's true. And finally, I want to give one more example because I think it's, because I think it's pervasive. That it was true even of me. That there is a difference of being offensive for your political prejudice and being offensive for your spiritual principles. Now, what do I mean by that? I think every person should have strong convictions and opinions about how society should work. And I got to the point, personally speaking, where my political prejudice made me view people lower than they were, than they should have been viewed that made me doubt people's standing or their faithfulness or their understanding of the text. And all of a sudden, my political prejudice affected how I viewed other people and what type of relationship I wanted with them. Versus when you have spiritual principles ordering your steps, it is impossible if the Bible is your foundation for you to be fully on board with any political party for you to camp out on one section of the aisle, it is an impossibility. The Bible says that there is no left or right here. This is above. You will be offending both sides at some point. And so with that being said, if you lead a life that is offensive for your spiritual principles, not your political prejudice, people will blame you for lots of different things. When you want to be merciful with your political beliefs, your social understandings of how things should work, merciful to the unborn or merciful to the poor, when you want to believe that both of those things can be true simultaneously, when fairness and mercy or empathy, when all those things can come together because you as a Christian are following this and not whatever the world is saying you have to choose between, in that space, people will look at you and they will hate you for that. They will call you a coward for not making a definitive decision. They will say you're to blame for whichever candidate is voted in into the Oval Office. You will be blamed. You will be insulted. You will be ignored. You will be hated. And believe me when I say this, modern day, 21st century Houstonian, this is what persecution looks like. This is how you can be offensive even when you are faithful. It's coming. It's coming. Rest assured, your pursuit of God will result in pain. It will. 
And now everybody's like, great, great message, guy. This is, this is really exciting. It does beg the question, right? It, we, we all get to that place of, okay, and what else? You see, it begs the question, why? Why does this path of pursuing God, why does it have to be marked by persecution and pain? Why? If we were to look at Proverbs 29.10, which is on the screen here behind me. Proverbs 29.10, it reads this, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. Now, I want to pause here. I want to keep this on the screen for a second. That phrase, bloodthirsty men, it does not mean men who are out to kill, just violent men and women. That literal phrase means men of blood or men with blood. So really anybody, anybody in this room, anybody out there, people in general hate the one who is blameless. And they seek after the life of one who is upright. Now, what does that mean? Why would the Proverbs say that is true of people? And the reason is this. Blamelessness is about your past. You see, everybody in the world out there is carrying the mistakes that they've made in the past. It's written all over them. It affects their decisions, their thoughts, and their actions. But you, if you are in Christ today, if you have laid all of your past burdens onto him, you are counted as blameless. You don't have to carry that anymore. And so you walk around this life with a freedom that other people who don't know Jesus cannot attain. They can't even testify to what that could be like. And you know what that that does to somebody that can't explain why that's true of you? They hate you. They don't understand it. And people hate what they don't understand. And they seek after the life of one who is upright. That if you are blameless because Jesus has covered over your past, upright describes your present, how you view life before you. That all of a sudden your decision-making matrix is all about God's righteousness. It's all about his justice. The things that he cares about. And somebody will look at your life that is marked by a freed past and an upright future And they will hate you for it because they don't know what that's like. You see, when we think about Jesus, Jesus was not persecuted because he was good. Right, like think about the best person you know. The goodness spills out of them. They're kind to everybody. They won't be persecuted in life because, because they're good. Jesus was persecuted because he was different because he was inexplicable. We can't explain this. How can you be blameless and upright in all your ways? Something must be awry. Something must be wrong. Jesus was persecuted not because he was good, but because he was different. And you will be too. Look with me in John 15, where Jesus talks about this a little bit more in depth. John 15 reads this in verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. This is key. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Now, we need to come to grips with the why. Why is pain at the end of this path of pursuing God? It's because you don't belong here. 
that if you have said yes to Jesus, all of a sudden, your allegiance is not to the world, it's to Christ. Your membership is not to the world and to the earth, it's in heaven. And because you are different, because you are otherworldly, you are wholly other, people can't explain what's, what's going on with you. And people hate that which they can't explain, that which they can't understand. And so just like Jesus was persecuted for that, so will you be. You see, it's because you are with Christ, because you are like Christ, because you are in him that you will be hated and persecuted as he was. So rest assured, again, that your devotion, your pursuit of God will lead to persecution and pain. It will. And so we have to round this out by trying to come to grips with, well, how in the world is this the good life? Being ignored, being insulted, being mocked and blamed and hated, how is this the good life? How could this possibly be blessed? Look with me in verse 12 of Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad, says the text, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, rejoice and be glad. I I just want to take a moment here. Rejoice, we all know the word, be joyful. Be glad is an interesting phrase in the New Testament. It literally means jump for joy. Leap in excitement, not because of something you've avoided, but because of something you've overcome. That's what that phrase means. Be glad. Jump for joy. You've overcome. And so I I want us to understand together why, how. How is it possible that that we could rejoice and leap for joy when the path leads to pain and persecution? And the reason is this, that your company is grand. Your company is grand. Do me a favor, if you will. If will everybody just close your eyes. Close your eyes for me. Uh, just amuse me for a second. As you close your eyes, I want you to imagine you enter into a large, beautiful structure akin to the Sagrada Familia. And as you step into that space, you take a few steps in and you look to your left. And there is a beautiful stained glass image, and it says on the sign beneath it, Abel, the herder of cattle, killed by his brother for giving his first fruits to God. And you look and you say, ah, that's beautiful. You take a few steps further, continuing on with your eyes closed, and you look to the right. As you look to the right, you see David, the king of Israel, And beneath his name, it says, the man who had to hid and run from cave to cave for accepting the call on his life from the Lord. And you look and you say, ah, that's beautiful. You continue on and you see Daniel, Daniel, the prayerful one who was thrown into a furnace and into the lion's den for simply being faithful enough to pray day by day by day. As you continue on, you see the likes of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was called a prostitute all of her days, publicly shamed and whispered about because she received the call to give birth to the Son of God or to the Son of God. And and in that space, as you relish in her stained glass image, you continue on and you see the likes of the apostle Peter and uh, Paul, the church planter, and you see that they're both shackled and chained, but the the vivid imagery of their stained glass is bursting forward with light. And then finally, you press in and you see the likes of people you can't even name. 
Well, here is, here is a young man and a young woman who made hard choices to say no to the things that they once did and were ridiculed. The image even shows their friends laughing at them. And you look to the right and you see a a mom, a stay-at-home mom of three, who has made the hard choice to remain with her children and receive the ridicule from, from her peers, that she has foregone her career and given up the wrong things, and she's being laughed at. And finally, you look forward and there's a brilliant light that you can't even begin to stare at because it's so so brilliant. And you realize as you step forward and you have to look down in order to move forward, you see that there's, an, there's your name written on the stone. There's no picture just yet, but you stand there right in the place that your name is, and finally you get to gaze up, and there it is. There is the stained glass image of Jesus. The seven pieces that we had talked about, the perfection of the Beatitudes, that he was not just talking about the good life, that he was giving us an image of his in full, that he was poor in spirit, willing to go bankrupt, to have the the Father look at him and say uh, that you are forsaken, that I can't even stare at you anymore because you have taken on the sin of the world, that in a posture of meekness and humility that he would mourn the loss of relationship with the Father on the cross. And that as he hungered and thirsted for righteousness, he would look out and ask for the mercy of those who had crucified him, of those who had publicly shamed him. And in that space, as his light continues to burst forward, we realize that that his heart was pure in every way. And that his heart was set on making peace and reconciliation for sinful people and a holy God. And so as we open our eyes, we realize that in that space, we stand there, and as we look at Jesus, as we look at the hues that are spilling out onto us, we realize that for you and for me, those, those lights, the brilliance of that image, is not just something to gaze upon, but that based on 2 Corinthians three eighteen, it is changing you. It is changing you. That yes, your company is grand. That walk was incredible. But once you stand there, what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says is this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That phrasing, beholding the glory, it's a, it's a word that is, that is used only one time in all the scriptures. Beholding. It's not just to look at something. It's to fixate into something that is glass, is literally what that word means. That as you stare onto the image, the stained glass of Jesus, perfectly situated in all of those beatitudes, you realize that as you stand into that light, it is changing you. That you are actually beginning to reflect the very things that Jesus lived for and died for. And so the call on our lives, Christians, those who follow Jesus, is your pursuit of him will lead to pain, rest assured. But if you are willing to go there to that place, knowing that the company is grand and glorious, that there have been people in your past that have done this before, it will begin to change you as you behold him. You will become like the one you behold. And so Seven Mile Road, my my prayer for us is that as we wrap up these Beatitudes, is, is not just... Go live a better life so that you can be blessed. We have to come to the conclusion that if you strive to live like Jesus prescribes, 
to live the good life according to him, that path will lead to pain. But we can also be a people who rejoice because there's coming a day where we won't have to look at a, at a stained glass, that we won't have to read the text and see Jesus and behold him as dear. There's coming a day where you will meet Jesus face to face. And he will tenderly and yet firmly take you by the face. And as you get to gaze upon him, you will reflect back on the days, the months, and the years of all the pain, the sweat, and the tears, and together you will smile and you will laugh with Jesus face to face and you will utter the words, it was worth it. Oh, it was so worth it. That there is a rejoicing to be had in heaven with Jesus face to face one day. And so for the assurance that you are changing into be like him as you behold him, and that your company is grand, this is why this path could be the good life, a path of pain and persecution. Amen? Let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, I want to thank you this morning. Thank you for the reminder, God, that you have lived a life that is otherworldly. And as you give this message, as you provide us with these beatitudes, we come to realize that this isn't just describing somebody else's blessed life. This is you. You are the epitome of these beatitudes. You live them perfectly and holistically. And as we get to gaze upon you, chase after you, pursue you with the whole of our hearts, God, we realize that we are beginning to become like you that those same hues of those beatitudes begin to be reflected in and through us to a watching world that desperately needs it. And so God, help us be a people who are convinced, who rest assured that there is pain to be had as we pursue you, but we can be a people who rejoice, who leap for joy. Because there is coming a day where you will look at us face to face and we will smile and we will laugh and we will say together that it was all worth it for your name and for your glory's sake. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.